Broncos cheerleaders, and you're listening to Sports Crunch with DCROM. This is Sports Crunch with D-Crom. I'm your host, David Cromwell. And as I speak these words, we are only 50 days away from the 2022 NFL Draft, and the quarterback carousel is spinning faster than ever before. Thus, we continue our in-depth, position-by-position look at the 2022 draft class today with a look at this year's rookie crop of quarterbacks. And as I've said before, this is a rather underwhelming group of future signal callers, yet one with plenty of intrigue nonetheless. And once again, what better person is there to help us make sense of all of this than my main man and quarterback guru, Mark Schofield of the USA Today Touchdown Wire. Welcome back to the show, Mark. How are you? I'm doing well, David. Hello. Something tells me that I'm not doing quite as well as you are these days. And (laughs) and I think you know exactly where I'm going with that. But it's great to be back with you, buddy. Always a a blast catching up and excited to talk about this this quarterback class. And I'd imagine some of the quarterback carousel that's been going on the past couple of days as well. Absolutely. And we'll start with exactly that. And as you alluded to yesterday was a rather special day for me because one of the largest trades in NFL history went down as the Seahawks agreed to trade Russell Wilson to my Denver Broncos for two firsts, two seconds, Drew Locke, Shelby Harris, and Noah Fant. What are your overall thoughts on this trade? Well, I think from Denver's perspective, it makes a ton of sense, right? When you look at that roster, when you look at the weapons that they have on the offensive side of the football, when you look at sort of the 11 personnel package that they were able to put out last year around the quarterback position, that even after the Noah fan trade, they'll still be able to put out around now the newly acquired Russell Wilson. And this is an offense that seemed, for lack of a better phrase, a quarterback away, right? When you're looking at you know, an 11 personnel receiver group of Cortland Sutton, Jerry Judy, KJ Hamler. When you're looking at, yes, Noah Fant now gone, but I was pleasantly surprised the past couple of years, David, with what Albert always done so far in the National Football League. And I think he's in a very good position to sort of slide into that start and tight end role, you know, and they could potentially on day two or three of the draft add a tight end because um, I think this is an intriguing sort of day two and three tight end class. Obviously, Javante Williams and, you know, what he did last year and what he offers as well. That offense was really just a quarterback away. Now you have that quarterback in Russell Wilson. And I think it's also an acknowledgement that, as we all know, you know, this is a copycat league, right? When something works for one NFL franchise, 31 other franchises are going to try to follow suit. George Patton, the Denver Broncos, they just saw Matthew Stafford win a Super Bowl after the Los Angeles Rams sort of went all in on the veteran quarterback rather than trying to, you know, keep throwing assets and build it around Jared Goff. This is a similar situation. You have everything else. You feel like you're a quarterback away. Take the wild swing, you know, uh, for a quarterback of Russell Wilson's caliber rather than, you know, chasing down Jared Goff type of quarterbacks where, you know, you heard Jimmy Garoppolo, you heard other names banded about as potential landing spots in Denver. No, they took the swing on Russell Wilson. I think it's a very good move for them. Yes, and don't forget about Tim Patrick either at 11 personal package with him and Cortland Sun on the outside and Judy in the slide is pretty intriguing too. And uh, Tim Patrick is no slouch. They also extended him for a reason. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. I mean, you know, they've got all the weapons they need um, on the offensive side of the ball and certainly in, in, in the draft, you know, with the picks that they have remaining, they can certainly address some position groups. Now, you know, it's, it's going to be graded on that sort of what do they do now? How do they win? How much do they compete? This year, you know, do they get to a Super Bowl? Do they get to a conference championship game? I mean, that will probably be the scale with which this trade is eventually graded on. But sitting right now at the start of March, it seems like a very, very smart move for Denver. Yes. And does Russell Wilson alone make the Broncos a serious contender to make a deep playoff run, regardless of how they get in the playoffs? You know, I think he does, David. Uh, You know, because this is a team last year that, you know, a lot of us in the media last offseason we're saying look Denver is in a very good position right you look at you know we walked through the offense but let's not sleep on what they've also built on the defensive side of the ball as well you're talking about a defense that is very good you know particularly in the secondary with the addition of Patrick Sertan who is already one of the game's best corners I think now they have some questions perhaps at the linebacker spot they have a number of players that are becoming free agents including you know Alexander Johnson for example they did draft the two Ohio State guys 
you know, last year, the third rounder, Baron Brown and the seventh rounder, Jonathan Cooper. So there are some guys that can sort of slide in, but there are additions that still need to be made. The job's certainly not done, but when you have that elite quarterback, when you have that guy, that's a top five, top seven, top eight quarterback that gives you a position. It puts you in a position to win football games. Now, yes, Russell Wilson has had some ups and downs over the past two years. He had the injury and things like that, but I still think that when healthy, he's the type of quarterback that you win games because of, not that you win games with. And rather than acquiring a guy that you win games with, like say a Jimmy Garoppolo or running the back with a guy like Teddy Bridgewater, who was also one of those quarterbacks you win games with, they went out and tried to get one of those quarterbacks you win games because of, and that's what you need in today's NFL. Yes, and a big reason why Russell Wilson uh, wanted to come to Denver was the hiring of new head coach Nathaniel Hackett. You saw what Nathaniel Hackett was able to get out of Aaron Rodgers uh, these past couple of years. Yes, I know uh, coaches uh, will be the first to say they're only as good as their players, but uh, there is something to be said when Aaron Rodgers talks of just how much he valued Nathaniel Hackett's input uh, in this uh, impressive uh, two-year run he's had, winning back-to-back league MVP awards in his late 30s. So how ideal do you think is the fit for Russell Wilson in Nathaniel Hackett's system? You know, David, I think first and foremost, my, my colleague at USA Today, Doug Farrar, pointed out, and Doug's a, you know, longtime Seattle guy that, you know, he sort of got his start on the Seattle beat. When Russell Wilson came into the league, Doug still tells the stories about being at practices and seeing Wilson's rookie camp and realizing that, yeah, sure, they just paid Matt Flynn all that money, but this Wilson kid's going to start before you know it. And seeing, you know, guys like Richard Sermon sort of rally around the incoming rookie. So he knows that Seattle organization extremely well. And what Doug pointed out is for the first time in his career, you know, Wilson has a head coach that sees the game through a quarterback's set of eyes. You know, obviously playing under Pete Carroll, it's more a defensive-minded head coach. Now you got Nathaniel Hackett, who obviously has more of an offensive background. What's going to be interesting is I think areas where Wilson is best are certainly in the vertical passing game has a tremendous deep ball that he throws with touch with accuracy, puts a lot of air under it, drops it into a bucket when he needs to. And some elements of that with Hackett's more West Coast sort of quick game background will be interesting to see how they mesh together. But any good offensive-minded head coach or offensive coordinator knows that what you have to do is take what your quarterback does well and tailor your offense to that. And I think Hackett's going to find a way to sort of blend what he likes to do with the spread stuff and quick game elements to his offensive philosophy with what Wilson likes to do with a more vertical passing game, he's going to find a way to blend the two. And so I, I think because of Hackett's approach to the game, generally speaking from a 50,000 foot lens, that's going to be a huge boost to what Wilson could do over the next couple of years, because as Doug said, now he has a head coach that sees the game through a similar set of eyes. Yes, and uh, he's worked with uh, another great quarterback for the past two years, as I mentioned. So working with uh, Aaron Rodgers uh, could definitely help Nathaniel Hackett take a similar approach to uh, Russell Wilson. And I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Russell Wilson uh, was speaking to Aaron Rodgers these past couple weeks about what Nathaniel Hackett's like. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, look, these guys talk. um, And and I'm sure that Wilson knew that, you know, Rodgers was going back to Green Bay as Rodgers announced. I'm sure the two were in communication and I'm sure, you know, Russell probably asked some questions and got a good idea of, you know, what Aaron appreciated about working with Hackett, what he's like working with him, you know, and, you know, the quarterback fraternity is a tightly knit group. And so I wouldn't be surprised at all to see if those two had had some discussions. And look, we, we saw that other teams made aggressive moves to try to acquire Russell Wilson, certainly the Philadelphia Eagles, Washington Commanders, uh, but Wilson apparently and reportedly wanted to go to Denver. And I have to think that Hackett plus the weapons that we've talked about were two big reasons why. Most definitely. And uh, let's talk about the quarterback that others thought Denver was going to get Aaron Rodgers, who decided to remain in green Bay after all. And for the record, Russell Wilson was actually my top choice for the Broncos due to age, but I'm also a Bears fan, you know, and uh, it does kind of stink to have Rodgers in the division for another uh, three to four years tops. But nonetheless, I think there's some benefit to this for the Bears because uh, there is something to be said about iron sharpening iron. And uh, Justin Fields, a quarterback with a ceiling and skill set very similar to Russell Wilson, it is in the Bears' hands under a rookie deal. And you've got another up-and-coming offensive mind working with him and Luke Getzey that Aaron Rodgers loved working with in Green Bay these past several years. 
and uh, him having to like go pound for pound with Aaron Rodgers for another couple years, I think there could be a big benefit to that. Do you think that Aaron Rodgers' decision to remain in the NFC North can actually be beneficial to Justin Fields' long-term development? You know, I, I think it could certainly help in a couple of ways that you sort of talked about there, David. I think the idea of, you know, seeing what Aaron Rodgers is doing, you know, getting play against him twice a year, having, you know, the opportunity to sort of observe him somewhat from a distance, but still, you know, within the same division will certainly help. You know, I think more importantly, it's what gets he's going to be able to do with him, you know, and we've seen now, and you've seen this up close and have a better view of it perhaps than anybody, you know, two young quarterbacks under Matt Nagy, first Mitchell Trubisky and now Justin Fields last year, sort of struggling to get where they need to be. You know, it certainly did seem like a change was necessary. Now we get incoming offensive coordinator gets you as an opportunity to sort of move Justin Fields in a positive direction. And I think while Fields certainly struggled at times last year, there were also some moments where you could see the light come on. And there were some throws that he made last year, some decisions that he made last year that showed you why people like myself and others thought he was perhaps the second, if not the best quarterback in last year's draft class. And so I'm very excited about the future for Justin Fields. I do think that he's an extremely talented quarterback. He needed to be in a good situation from a coaching standpoint. Now it's a matter of getting the right scheme. And I hope that it is more of a vertical based passing offense rather than what we saw with Matt Nagy, obviously more West coast influenced concept concepts and uh, schemes in his offensive system of playbook. So I'm excited about what we're going to see from Justin Fields. And I certainly hope that we see the quarterback that we thought we were going to get when the bears traded up to draft him in last year's draft. Oh, absolutely. And just as we said with uh, Russell Wilson and Nathaniel Hackett, uh, Justin Fields getting to work with a guy who knows Aaron Rodgers very well can only help him achieve uh, a similar level of play uh, down the road. And uh, moving along to this uh, draft class of quarterbacks, uh, if there is one quarterback that uh, people are talking themselves into falling in love with, it is Liberty's Malik Willis, Thor Nystrom, who was on this program last week, and I believe uh, who you saw at the Combine. Uh, um, he um, has Malik Willis as his top-rated quarterback in this class, as do you, although that is subject to change as we get further down the road. But uh, based on where we are now, why is Malik Willis your top-rated quarterback in this class? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... You know, this this year's group, David, might be a great argument for why it might start making sense tiering quarterbacks as opposed to, say, full-on rankings. And it's something that I'm sort of toying with, sort of ranking, like, or grouping quarterbacks by, like, guys that can play right away, guys that might need a little bit more development, you know, guys that are probably a little bit more of a project. And while, for example, Malik Willis might be a guy that needs a little bit more development, he might be sort of the guy in that second tier. What makes him perhaps the guy that I think myself and others and certainly some NFL teams might be more willing to take the swing on is just the potential upside might be there that you're willing to take the risk. You know, talking to people like Thor and others in Indianapolis, like maybe there's a 5, 10, 15% chance that what you get out of Malik Willis is something close to his full potential. You're willing to take that risk, even if it's, you know, a smaller chance than say a Kenny Pickett reaching his full potential because what Willis could be is tremendous. What Willis could be is along the par of, you know, I haven't finalized comps yet or anything, but I was driving around thinking about him today. And is, a, is it, you know, potentially a Randall Cunningham? Is it potentially a, a Steve McNair? I mean, that's what he could be if he gets close to his full potential as a quarterback. Teams have seen, you know, we just talked about how the NFL is a copycat league. Teams have seen the rise of Josh Allen. Teams have seen what a raw, toolsy, tremendously talented player can become in the right situation. And teams are going to talk themselves into the, their own ability to do the same. Whatever team drafts Malik Willis, whether it's, you know, Carolina at six, hypothetically, whether it's Seattle at nine, whether it's Atlanta at eight, whether it's Detroit at two, as we're hearing some genuine buzz about right now, they will have the firm belief that they can take what he is and make him into what he can be, at least watching him right now. Incredible athleticism, elite arm talent. I mean, we, we knew this about him last year and what he sort of confirmed both down in Mobile for the during the senior bowl week. And it's certainly during his throwing session at the combine, the ball just explodes out of his hand a little bit differently than some of the other guys in this class. Other guys in this class have very good arms. 
Carson Strong. You know, Kenny Pickett has a good arm. Denver's, they have good arms. His is just different. And as we've talked over the years, you and I have known each other, the elite velocity and arm talent that some quarterbacks have gives them a bit wider of an error bar. It gives them a bit more of a crutch, uh, a tool to rely on. So when you're trying to get your mind where it needs to be as a quarterback, making the jump from the college game to the pro game, that arm talent, that elite level velocity gives you that extra half second in the pocket where if you're not quite sure, you can take that extra half second and then let it rip because the arm is going to allow you to get the throw still where it needs to be on time. And so I think that's what's put in him perhaps separated him from the pack a little bit, David. It's just the fact that teams are going to be willing to buy into and take a chance on those traits. Now there will be homes for guys like Ritter and Pickett, you know, the two that I think are perhaps the more like NFL ready, the two that I think are closest to being able to start say week one, or at least early as a rookie, but Willis and his potential, I, I think teams are going to bet on that ahead of perhaps the guy that might be a little bit more of a plug and play option at the quarterback position, at least in this class. Absolutely. And based on your film study of Malik Willis to date, what do you think is his best attribute and what is his biggest, potentially most fatal flaw? Yeah. I mean, I think his best attribute is that arm talent. I mean, you know, as we just sort of talked about that ability to take that extra half second and still get the football where it needs to be on time. It allows you to take your time mentally with the development and the decision-making that you need to improve upon as a quarterback. Like, you know, I, the Josh Allen comparisons, like that there are reasons for them, but I remember as a rookie, you know, he would take that extra half second or sometimes a full second in the pocket, but he would still have the ability to put that football right where it needed to be, or at least get it close to where it needed to be. Allen had obviously some accuracy problems that he has also worked through, you know, obviously with the work that he's done with Jordan Palmer. I think that arm talent is a huge thing for Malik Willis, that ability to make throws to all levels, that ability to put NFL upper tier velocity on his throws. That's something that's going to serve him well whenever he starts seeing the field as an NFL quarterback. In terms of where he needs to improve, I saw a lot of repeated mistakes this past season at Liberty. I mean, one just sort of quick example against Middle Tennessee State. They had that little formation for receiver into the boundary play where you have the bubble screen and you pump it. You try to get, you know, one of the outside receivers on that vertical, the wheel up the sideline. And he threw a pick on it. That was early in the season. He made the same exact mistake on the road in a huge game against Mississippi and Matt Corral, which was a showcase game for those two quarterbacks repeated mistakes on sort of staple concepts is something that gives me a little bit of pause. Now, again, Willis is somebody that might need a little bit more time to sort of develop the team that drafts him might sort of take the Trey Lance approach that we saw with the Niners this year, which is we might have some packages for him, And if we need him to play, we'll get him ready, but we'll take our time with them. You know what? I, I think what we've seen in recent days and what we've seen today with what Washington did in training for Carson Wentz, in my mind, that tells you how the NFL views this quarterback class. They view it as guys that will go into need some time. If you feel you're close as an organization, you might say approach a Carson Wentz or a Jimmy Garoppolo trade or Mitchell Trubisky in free agency. These guys might need some time and Willis is in that group. So repeated mistakes, it shows that he's going to have to take some time to develop and sort of work through things and work through progressions. Not that he can't do it. It's just he's going to need to get a whole lot better in that area. Absolutely. And speaking of uh, quarterbacks being ready to go, if there is a quarterback in this class that many believe is ready to go at some point this year, it is Kenny Pickett of Pittsburgh coming from that uh, pro style system uh, in Pittsburgh and the uh, season he had uh, definitely make him such a candidate. However, um, aside from uh, the fact that uh, his ceiling and floor aren't that too far apart, it's like a uh, prime years of Andy Dalton and Kirk Cousins and, and nothing more. Uh, the biggest uh, issue with him, as came out of the combine last week, is his historically small hand size at eight and a half inches. And how historically small is it? Well, according to a Warren Sharp, a renowned football data analyst, out of 663 quarterbacks since 1987, only nine had smaller hands than Kenny Pickett has. And no quarterback currently in the National Football League has hands that small. 
and no such quarterback has entered the NFL in at least five years. And the last successful quarterback was Michael Vick, yet Michael Vick had tools for days and uh, a quarterback along the range of an Andy Dolan, Kirk Cousins, will never touch the ceiling of a Michael Vick, so to speak. Nonetheless, it provoked an endless debate on Twitter about how much should Kenny Pickett's eight and a half inch hand size matter? How much should it in your view? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> settle in, David. We, you, you can probably relax, make a sandwich, go get a drink, whatever. I, I'm going to be talking here for a while now. Um, first and foremost, fully upfront, full disclosure. I know his private quarterback coach, Tony Rice, opened really well. Tony and I, uh, I've been friends for years now. Um, and Tony and I talk about quarterbacks all the time. He and I have talked about Kenny Pickett. And so just in terms of full disclosure, I always sort of put that out there. Um, with respect to Kenny Pickett's hand size, you know, David, you and I have known each other for a long time. And you probably remember the year I came on your show and talked about, oh, you know, this, this, the guys at the top of this quarterback class are interesting. But let me tell you a couple minutes about Brett Rippon at Boise State. I, I love Brett Rippon coming out of Boise State. Brett Rippon also had small hands. They were bigger than Kenny Pickett's. But in the hand size conversation, there are things that you look for to tell you whether it's actually a concern on the field. One of which is, you know, is there a fumble problem? We're not just your guys getting blasted from a blind side hit from a linebacker and he coughs it up. Like, does he just give up the football in the pocket? Over his five-year career, career at Pitt, Pickett's got 26 fumbles. I don't think that's an outlandish number over five years where he played the majority of the time, you know, that second year and then was the full-time starter for the last three. I don't think that's a huge number. And he played behind some rough offensive lines. Let's put it, let's put it that way. Whereas opposed to Brett Rippon, you did see some of those issues. You did see moments in the, where he'd get bumped in the pocket and the ball pops out. So that's one thing. Another thing to consider is weather, the elements. Um, Pickett obviously played outdoors. Heinz Field, same stadium the Steelers played in. And yes, he wears a glove, but when they had weather games, it wasn't like they suddenly became a run-oriented offense. It wasn't like they took the football out of his hands. And it wasn't like when they asked him to throw the ball was sailing all over the place. Then you watch Brett Rippon, his last sort of regular season game, the conference championship game, his senior year at Boise State. They're playing Fresno State at home in Boise early in the game and then later as in get, get into the second half it's rain it's sleet it's snow it's wet conditions they were a run first only offense because they didn't trust him to throw the ball in those conditions and so that's another mark that i think works in pickett's favor yes eight and a half inches makes him an outlier and as you pointed out you know smallest from a potential early round pick since michael vick and Michael Vick had elite game-breaking athletic traits to rely upon. And while Pickett is certainly an athlete, he's not Michael Vick. And so there will be teams that might not have him on their board because of it. Because let's, let's face it, as I remind people all the time, an NFL general manager, the, the men and women in those buildings, they don't want to get fired. You know? And if you bet early on an outlier and it doesn't go well, you might get fired for that. Even if it's a guy that was a Heisman finalist because – it's an easy thing for ownership to say, look, you know, you drafted Kenny Pickett, you sold us on it, but you, you, we told you like he's an outlier and you took the chance and it didn't pan out. So here we go. So there might be teams that are wary of that. I don't think you should be because of the external stuff that we've talked about because of the film study, because of what he's done on tape. And as you mentioned, look, he's a guy that's ready to go from sort of a mental perspective. When you see him layer throws in the middle of the field, when you see him make anticipatory throws on dig routes and routes breaking between the numbers, between the hash marks, that shows you what he has from a mental perspective. I think teams are going to love that about him, but because of the hand size, it's an easy thing for some decision makers to point to and say, look, it makes him an outlier. We're a bit wary of it. We'll let somebody else make that call. We're not going to do it. We're going to take him off our board, and we're going to rank him third, fourth, fifth, or sixth in this class. And if we have a need at the quarterback position, we're going to go elsewhere. Yes, and you made a lot of great points there, Mark. But uh, I was down in Mobile, and uh, it was apparent to many that uh, in the rain um, during practices there, and it rained twice, uh, it was apparent Kenny Pickett was having a hard time in the elements, and uh, that is definitely going to scare a lot of teams off. Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, that's perhaps the elements coupled with the bigger football. I mean, in the college game, it wasn't an issue. In the pro game, it might be. The senior bowl was probably going to be a data point for some teams, but they'll 
you know, they'll look at what he did down there and say, yep, that's the eight and a half inch hands. Like that's the eight and a half inch hands with an NFL football. And so, you know, teams are going to be able to make that decision and say, you know, we just don't trust it. You know, that might see Kenny Pickett slide. And interestingly enough, he might slide to a team in Pittsburgh at 20, which might be a pretty good spot for him, you know, because of what they have in place because of the run game that they have, you know, because obviously, you know, under Mike Tomlin, there's going to be sort of a more conservative minded approach. They're not going to want to, you know, take chances and force things. And so, you know, he might slide and it might actually be a good thing for him, you know, because he might end up in a situation where he needs things around him to be better. And he might find that as a result. Absolutely. And another quarterback that uh, could very well hear his name called on day one is Matt Corral of Ole Miss. And granted, you know, I am no scout. I am no X's and O's guy. But even I, when watching Matt Corral this past year, uh, was able to say, hmm, can I really see him making plays like that in the NFL? I'm not sure I can based on this uh, scheme he's running at Ole Miss. Based on that, just how difficult is it to project somebody like Matt Corral to an NFL offense? Yeah, I mean, David, Matt Corral's projection is going to be tough. Like, and it's something that he talked about in Indianapolis during his podium session. I thought, you know, I, I didn't get to see every quarterback's podium session, but he and Carson Strong were, I think, the two most impressive of the ones that I did see. You know, he talked a lot about how when he's meeting with teams, like, that's what they're interested in, like, how his offense translates. They're also interested in, interestingly enough, David, how he dealt with those drop eight coverages. That was obviously a, a big storyline in the playoffs in the postseason with, you know, Patrick Mahomes and their struggles against the Bengals drop eight and then how other teams fared against the drop eight. That might be the next sort of wave, right? The big defensive trend this year was the too high stuff. That's been the trend the past couple of years. The next trend might be this drop eight stuff where teams are basically saying, not just going too high, we're going to drop eight into coverage. You basically say, look, read it out. Like, try to figure it out. Um, we'll see um, it, from that perspective. But, you know, bringing it back to Matt Corral, his adjustment to life in the NFL is going to be difficult. It's going to be a bit steep for him. Lane Kiffin did a tremendous job conceptually, giving him sort of half-field reads, giving him high-low concepts. They love to do, you know, orbit motion into a bubble or a swing and then a deep out route. It's just basically a ver variation of smash where you're high, low in that curl flat defender and just throw it off of him. And so they gave him a lot of easy reads and defined throws. And the other thing that's extremely notable, both from watching it on film myself and then to talking to others, you know, out in Indianapolis and other places or, or just on Twitter, Lane Kiffin kind of took the ball out of his hands on third downs, you know, in third downs, late game situations, you know, they relied more on the run game or it's a lot more bubbles and smoke screens and really sort of restricted what he needed to do for me playing quarterback standpoint and, and that's a bit worrisome you know if you're not given the football and told to go make a play on third down on, on, on Saturdays what's going to happen when you're asked to do that on Sundays and so that's a bit concerning but I think that there are moments on his film Matt Waldman and I did a, a film video breakdown of Matt Corral a couple of weeks ago from Matt's side and you can see moments where he comes off front side concepts and gets the backside things gets the backside dig routes, for example. There are moments where he's attacking the middle of the field and layering in throws. And I think what's really interesting, not to make a one-to-one -one comparison between the players, but to make a comparison between the evaluations. Because if you remember the discussions we had and everybody had about Justin Herbert coming out of Oregon and it was, you know, this offense isn't doing him any, any favors and there's a lot of screens and he doesn't, He's not asked to make throws in the middle of the field too much. And his evaluation is tough as a result. And Justin Herbert panned out pretty well, you know, because if you could dig through his film, you could find examples of, okay, maybe it's just one or two plays here, but this is going to translate to the NFL. I think something similar could be a play here with Matt Corral. I think there are moments on film where it's like, yeah, yeah, this throw right here, this dig route or, or this play, you've got that front side concept, you don't like it, and you work full field right to left going one, two, three, four, and then you're checked down, your, your feet and your eyes and your mind all tied together. That will work in the NFL, Matt. And so I, I think there are examples to point to where Matt Corral, his game will translate, but there are also moments where it's like, yeah, Lane did a lot of hand-holding with him. And he's going to need, similar to Malik Willis, a little bit of time to sort of season and develop for the NFL game. 
Well, thank you for that uh, in-depth uh, look at Matt Corral. And uh, when it comes to Matt Corral, like uh, I'm seeing one thing and uh, analysts uh, who have uh, better minds than me are seeing another apparently. And I was uh, just wondering uh, where you landed, uh, so to speak. Um, I see a pretty darn good gifted athlete in Matt Corral, but the comparisons that I've seen tossed around from him are Baker Mayfield and Andy Dalton. Is he the athlete Malik Willis is? Probably not, but is he the athlete Andy Dalton, Baker Mayfield is? I think he's more athletic than those two personally. How high do you think is his athletic ceiling compared to that of Andy Dalton, Baker Mayfield? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd put him more on the sort of Marcus Mariota level, level of athlete than like Baker and Dalton. I, I think, you know, they certainly used his legs a bit more. They used his athleticism a bit more than, you know, Baker was used at Oklahoma or, or Dalton, even at TCU. And I think Matt Corral sort of flashed that athleticism on the field. Now, obviously with the high ankle sprain, he didn't test at Indianapolis, you know, we're hopeful that it will test at his pro day. And it wouldn't surprise me if he, he tests really well. Cause I I'm with you, David, I think he's a, a lot more athletic than those sort of comparisons give him credit for. And it, it wouldn't surprise me if when he gets to the NFL, you see some of those elements, you know, run schemed elements and, you know, moving around the pocket and letting him make plays outside the pocket and on the move. Uh, I w- it wouldn't surprise me at all to see if those are a big part of what he's asked to do in the NFL, particularly early in his career. Absolutely. And in your most recent mock draft for the USA Today Touchdown Wire, you have the Steelers selecting Desmond Ritter from Cincinnati at 20 overall. And uh, I saw Desmond Ritter in Mobile, and he was absolutely struggling with accuracy on the most basic quarterback wide receiver toss drills, dare I say, like just quarterback throwing a wide receiver against there, and he was still struggling with that accuracy. Outside of sheer quarterback desperation, why do you think a team would believe somebody like Desmond Ritter is worth a first round investment? I think it starts with upstairs. I think when you see Ritter against Houston, for example, in their conference championship game, read out spun safety looks at the snap where Houston was doing a lot right as that play began going from two high to one, one high to two, you know, trying to sort of confuse him. And he was reading that out almost to perfection. Sort of, you know, you're going to go too high to one and give me a one-on-one matchup with Alec Pierce. I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that vertical shot. I'm going to get to that vertical shot. You're going to go one high to two. I'll read out the front side concept. If I don't like it, I'm going to get to that backside dig and I'm going to drill it. Like that's the kind of thing that you need to be able to do as a quarterback in the National Football League. Now, with respect to the accuracy, like I know that that's been a sort of a bugaboo that a lot of people have pointed to, you know, with his struggles with ball placement. I do think that he deserves credit for the fact that his ball placement was a bit worse last year than it was this year. He really sort of improved in my mind from last year to this year in terms of that ball placement, in terms of that accuracy. Now, you know, the senior bowl week, it's a data point, you know, uh, talking to guys like Carson Strawn and others, you know, to tell you the senior bowl week is hard. You know, you're learning a new offense, you're throwing to receivers that you haven't thrown to before. And, you know, this year there were elements to deal with as well from a weather standpoint. And so I think that sort of plays a role with with Ritter's sort of accuracy and ball placement down in Mobile. But I think generally speaking, what he does from a mental perspective is impressive and teams are going to like that. He's also somebody that, you know, like for example, with Matt Corral two years ago through 11 interceptions in just two games, LSU and Arkansas. Ritter doesn't make a ton of mistakes from that perspective as well. And teams are going to like that. And so I think what he offers from a mental perspective combined with the sort of secret and almost I'd say hidden athleticism, the way he tested at the combine, that wasn't something you really saw on film. Team can tap into that as well. You can find ways to use him from an athletic standpoint. And so I do think that Ritter has played himself in my mind into the first round with what he's done, particularly in the combine and what he did on film. But I also understand and freely admit he's an extremely polarizing prospect. Like you, you talk to people like Nate Tice, he's a bleacher report and they've got him QB one. You talk to others and they've got him like QB five, QB six. He's, he's a very polarizing prospect and what is a polarizing prospect class of quarterbacks. But I think he's put himself in first round contention because of what he does from a mental standpoint and what he showed on the field, you know, getting Cincinnati to the playoff and those strides that he made last year to this year in terms of that accuracy and ball placement. 
Yes, and uh, the way you describe him, I think you're on the same page with Lance Zierlein. Lance Zierlein's pro comp for Desmond Ritter, Alex Smith. Yeah, and I, I think that's a very good comparison um, because, again, you have that sort of untapped, unutilized, or underutilized athleticism. Certainly Alex Smith, very athletic quarterback, and you know he did use that when he was playing at Utah, you know, and teams certainly used that particularly during his time with the San Francisco 49ers. And I think, you know, the, the mental side of it was certainly something that Smith brought to the table. I think that's something Ritter brings to the table. And Alex Smith was the first overall pick. I mean, now is, is Ritter a one, one? No, you know, I don't think any of the guys in the guys in this class are really a, a one, one type of quarterback, but I think it's put himself into the first round discussion. Of course, you know, like you pointed out, I mocked him to Pittsburgh at 20. If the Steelers, like people expect, you know, trade for Jimmy Garoppolo, then they probably don't go quarterback at 20. Um, but I do think Ritter's found himself into that first round discussion. It's going to be very fascinating to see how many of these quarterbacks go on day one. I asked an AFC team personnel official uh, down in Mobile, how many of these quarterbacks do you think are going in the first round? And he says uh, three or four based on the historic law of averages. And, uh, but as you said, uh, based on the Russell Wilson trade and the Carson Wentz trade and the Jimmy Garoppolo trade that's about to go down in a couple of days and the uh, Deshaun Watson trade that will likely go down should uh, his legal system uh, be uh, cleaned up this week. Um, the NFL is rightfully, uh, dare I say, not enamored with this class of quarterbacks. So my question is, and this is kind of a betting tip, if the over-under of quarterbacks selected in the first round this year is at three, would you take the over or under and why? I'd still take the over, you know, because I think it's still such a position of need, number one, you know, and it, as we've seen over the past couple of years, as we've seen, certainly, even with the trades that have been made to date, you have to go get that player. You know, if you don't have an answer at quarterback, you have to find that answer. And so I think teams are going to talk themselves into drafting these quarterbacks. Now, maybe we're not seeing guys at the start of the draft, right? Maybe Detroit at two, even though they have a quarterback need, maybe they say, look, we're drafting best player available at two. Maybe a team like Carolina, they address it via free agency or trade. But that might mean that later in the draft, if you're a team like, say, the Tennessee Titans, and yeah, you have Ryan Tannehill in place, but you have an opportunity to draft a quarterback that has fallen, you're going to take that because you have the opportunity to get them in, to get a year ahead of schedule, to get a year of development under their belts. And it gets you an opportunity to make sure, okay, we've still got a quarterback who knows what next year's class is going to look like. Maybe it's as good as people expect it to be. Maybe not. And even with the Washington trade for Carson Wentz, there is still a school of mind that they might still draft a quarterback because Wentz might put them in a position where, they make the playoffs, but they don't make a deep run. So they're picking in the twenties and that puts you out of range of a, a Brian, you know, Bryce Young or a CJ Stroud or a Phil Jakovic or a Spencer Rattler, if he turns it around. And so they might take the opportunity to say Malik Willis is staring us in the face at 11. We're going to draft him and let him sit and learn for a year. And so because of that, because of the opportunities that I think some teams will have, they'll have, there will be three plus quarterbacks. I'd say four, five would surprise me. You know, but I do think we get four because there will be opportunities for teams to get a year ahead. Because look, remember, it doesn't always pan out the way we think. This time last year, we were looking ahead to this cycle and we were thinking Spencer Rattler and Sam Howell are one and two. Like those are QB one and two. It changes quickly. And so while we're sitting here right now thinking that Stroud and Young and Jakovic and some of these other guys are going to take these steps and it's going to be a good class. It might not. They might not. They might decide to go back to school. It might look drastically different. And so if you're a team with not an immediate need, a quarterback, but you have an opportunity to perhaps get somebody this year and you don't know what next year's group is going to look like and you have a pretty good idea that you won't be picking in the top five or ten, you might take that chance on a quarterback in this year's group and get ahead of schedule. So I, I think there will still be more than three. So that three and a half, I'd still take the over. He is Mark Schofield, ladies and gentlemen. USA Today touched on why are one of the best quarterback minds on the planet. And Mark, now we're going to play a little game called Buy or Sell. And in this game, we're going to discuss a quarterback prospect that we have not discussed yet. And you tell me whether you buy or sell his long-term potential in the NFL. 
We start with a guy you've mentioned, Carson Strong of the University of Nevada, Reno. I'm buying it. Um, you know, Strong, as I, as I sort of alluded to earlier, David, was one of the more impressive guys to talk to. He talked a lot about his knee injury history, and he talked about how not just his doctor who told him to take a year off, his dad told him to take a year off. And he said, no, I, I don't want to leave my teammates behind. Let's figure out a six-month plan. And he also talked about how the guy that you saw on film with that knee injury, that was not the full Carson Strong experience because as he's been working with Jordan Palmer, he's realized that he was really compensating for that right knee injury when he was throwing during the, the regular season and on the field from Nevada and even into the senior bowl. And, you know, I, I think he's a good quarterback. Um, the knee injury, the medical thing, that's a piece the team's going to have to feel comfortable with. But from what he can do when he's healthy, what he can do when his base is under him, the velocity he can get on throws, I think he has an NFL future. What about Sam Howell? Do you buy or sell Sam Howell? Howell was perhaps one of the toughest evaluations for me of this entire class. Um, I, I do think that the comparisons to Baker Mayfield are apt. I do think he's somebody that started rough that game against Virginia Tech, but I think he sort of turned it on as the season went on. I was very impressed with what he did as a runner, as an athlete. He was their second leader rusher, I believe, at UNC this year. And he did it while losing some serious NFL talent to the National Football League guys like, you know, Javante Williams and DME Brown and Michael Carter. And so I'm buying him in an NFL future. What that looks like, I think, is going to be more that Kirk Cousins, Baker Mayfield, Garoppolo, QB you win with rather than the guy that elevates everybody around him. He might be a guy that slides into the second round. Um, but I do think that there's an NFL future for Sam Howell. Do you buy or sell, and this is a guy Benny on draft Twitter really like, Caleb Ellaby of Western Michigan? I would have loved to see Caleb go back to, a, to, to school for another year. Um, now, I, I can understand why looking at this draft class, he thought, look, I, I, I get a real shot to make some noise in this group. I, I can understand from that point. And he was tremendous at during his podium session as well. I, I really enjoyed hearing from him. I would have liked to see him go back, but I do think he has an NFL arm. I think he has NFL pocket movement. I, I think that, you know, one of the things that I really like seeing from him was the quickness with which he can get his feet under him. It was almost Burrow-esque in a sense. He was asked to do a ton from the RPO game. And so, you know, you see him get the feet under him. You get to see him reset his feet and snap and throw. That's something that I think translates well to the National Football League. So while I'm, you know, a little bit disappointed that he's coming out, I think he has an NFL future. I think what might happen, though, is he's going to slide into day three and there won't be this sort of draft capital investment that teams will have in the day one and two picks. And so he's going to have to really sort of thread the needle from that standpoint. But he can be an NFL quarterback. It just might be a tougher road for him than some of these other guys. What about Bailey Zapp of Western Kentucky? Buy or sell Bailey Zapp? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm buying him as that Taylor Haneke type of long-term backup spot starter type. I, I think that's where he sort of fits. Obviously put a video game numbers first at Houston Baptist and then transfer to Western Kentucky. Um, you know, he can make some throws. He can make some reads. You know, if you're somebody that believes in, you know, m amount of throws and, you know, the amount of reps you've had as a passer, I don't think there's anybody that's had more than him, given the amount of times he threw the ball, both uh, Houston Baptist and later at, at Western Kentucky. So I think as a long-term backup spot starter type, Zappy sort of, I'm buying that. If you're hoping that he can be like, you know, somebody that develops into a full-time upper tier NFL starter, I'd sell that approach. But in terms of long-term backup spot star, I could see that happening for sure. And last but not least for buy or sell, Lance Zierlein considers this guy his sleeper of this year's draft class, Jack Cohen, buy or sell. I'm going to buy that. And the reason why Cohen was impressive because he talked a lot about setting protections at the line of scrimmage, particularly at Notre Dame you know, under their offensive coordinator, former quarterback as well. He had the freedom with the line of scrimmage to set protections, to flip protections for Mike points. That's something that won't be new to him. That's something that might be new to a lot of the other quarterbacks that are coming in. And I think that gives him an opportunity to get ahead of the game from a mental perspective, because that's one less thing that will be new to him at the line of scrimmage. You know, one of the adjustments that I talked at length uh, with Nate Tice about this when we were out in Indianapolis was, you know, when you're looking at the sideline to get the play call 
at the college game and then everything gets spelled out for you then you go and run it that's one thing you know but it's another thing when you're at the line of scrimmage you got to be responsible for all of that from a protection standpoint you know from a route from progression from canned calls and audibles and checks and things like that jack did that at notre dame you know and i think that's going to put him ahead of this class so when he gets to the line of scrimmage for his first nfl reps it's not going to be new to him where it's going to be new to some of these other guys and so I, I, I buy an NFL future for him. What that looks like, I think, is a bit more uncertain. I, I think he's somebody that could potentially potentially be a starter in the NFL. Um, more likely, it's that long-term backup type guy. But I'm buying an NFL future for Jack Cohn. Mark, thank you so much once again for joining us here tonight. But before we let you go, we want you to uh, give us your most ideal landing spot for some of these prospects, starting with Malik Willis. Interestingly enough, if you would ask me this 48 hours ago, I would have said the Denver Broncos. I would have said Denver was an ideal place because he could have probably played relatively early, you know, given the weapons that they would have around him. You know, now with that being, a, you know, perhaps out the door, I would slide it back to Washington now, you know, because I, I do think that he needs some time. And I do think that even though Washington just acquired Wentz, you know, there's been already some report and speculation that they might still draft a quarterback at 11. You know, I, I think Turner's offense might be a good fit for him from a schematic standpoint. And so I think if Willis can find himself to Washington, can get a year to sort of breathe, it might be an ideal situation for him. Yeah, plus uh, the commanders have weapons too. Antonio Gibson, Terry McLaurin, right. uh, Deami Logan Brown, Thomas. Logan Thomas. Yeah. Absolutely. They got mouse to be in that offense and sit a year behind Carson Wentz and take charge or take command in 2023. That would be perfect for Malik Willis. I agree. Uh, you mentioned the Steelers as a potential landing spot for Kenny Pickett. That's obviously an uh, obvious connection uh, given uh, him going to Pitt and sharing a facility with the Steelers. Any other teams come to mind for Kenny Pickett? Interestingly enough, the New Orleans Saints for Kenny Pickett. Um, you know, obviously Coach Carmichael, they're, they're bringing them back now as the offensive coordinator. You know, he has this sort of roots in that air, in that West Coast system where it's a lot of sort of quick game, quick decision, which asks a lot of the quarterback from a mental perspective and you know between Pickett and Ritter I think those are the two guys that are closest to being ready from that mental perspective and plus look if you're concerned about the hand size playing half your games in the Mercedes-Benz Superdome in those sort of climate control conditions and then you're talking about then you know two games at Atlanta uh, I mean a game in Atlanta each year a game at Tampa Bay each year a game at Carolina each year and then NFC South that might be sort of an ideal landed spot from that perspective as well. If the hand size and the elements does sort of give you some pause. And so I like the idea of picking to new Orleans, you know, whether it's a situation where they bring, you know, Winston back on a one-year deal and have Pickett there, or they draft Pickett and, you know, handle on with the guys there and have in the building as well, you know, make a run out of what that remains to be seen. But I think new Orleans would be an interesting landed spot for him as well. What about Matt Corral? Corral's a really tough one. Um, because of that sort of development and adjustment from what we saw in, you know, Mississippi under Lane Kiffin to what he'll be asked to do in the National Football League. I think there's going to be sort of, you know, a, a tough sort of needle to thread with his development. But, you know, an interesting landing spot for him. And I, I don't know if they would do it. Maybe they do. You know, maybe they do go the veteran route and Adam would be in Pittsburgh with Matt Canada. You know, I think Canada is interesting from a sort of philosophical standpoint. I think he's a bit more forward thinking, you know, a lot of movement and shifted and different things that he's done, you know, during his time as a coach that might fit well with what Matt Corral did at Mississippi under Lane Kiffin. And so say Pittsburgh decides, look, we're going to trade for Jimmy Garoppolo. We're going to sign a Mitchell Trubisky or we're going to acquire a veteran, but still take an opportunity to draft a rookie. Pittsburgh might be a very good spot for Matt Corral. Desmond Ritter. Yeah, Ritter, I, I think, is a quarterback that, you know, because of the stuff I talked about from that mental perspective, I think he's somebody that can fit almost anywhere. You know, I, I think he's not that any of these guys are like last year. Remember, I was telling you the reason why I loved Trevor Lawrence at the top of the board is he's the scheme diverse guy. He can fit sort of anywhere. I think none of these guys are really that scheme diverse. I think Ritter is the closest. Um, so that's why I think, you know, he could fit in Pittsburgh. But a spot that I like for him is Tennessee. You know, he talked during the combine about how he sort of modeled this game kind of after Ryan Tannehill. And I think that would be an interesting landing spot. Another one might be Atlanta at eight. You know, and I know that might seem really early, um, you know, for Desmond Ritter. And maybe it's a situation where they don't do it at eight. They do it at 43. But that Arthur Smith offense, 
play action, you know, play action concepts, layer throws in the middle of the field, post over Yankee, all that kind of stuff. That's stuff that Ritter's gave. And so while they may not do it at eight, if he's there at 43, Ritter to Atlanta would make a ton of sense. Sam Howell. I mean, the easy one is to say, let, you know, let him compete with Baker and go to Cleveland. I mean, because they are similar, I think. Then, then, you know, I think there's a lot sort of to that. I do like the idea of him in New Orleans. Um, I, I mentioned Kenny Pickett as a, a landed spot in New Orleans. I, I think Howell could fit in that offense as well. And another one would be Carolina, you know, and I don't know if Carolina, again, Carolina's in a very interesting position because, you know, they're picking at six, they're not drafting Howell at six, and then they don't pick again until 106. And so, I don't know if they'd have an opportunity to draft him, but McAdoo, that sort of West Coast background that he had, I think that would be a very good fit for Sam Howell. And so, you know, I don't know if it could be possible given their draft position and maybe Carolina is a team that sneakily trades down and tries to fill that gap between six and 106. Maybe they slide back a couple of spots, to try to get in a, another pick in that area. Um, but if they could get Sam Howell, I think that would be a good fit. What about Carson Strong? Bruce Arians, get him to Tampa Bay. Um, you know, I, I think he's that kind of like vertical, deep-based passer that I think Arians would absolutely love. Now, I've been told by people that Tampa Bay is a bit down on this quarterback class. You know, even though, look, they just lost Tom Brady. You know, there's been speculation like, hey, you know, what if these guys fall to 27? I've been told that they're still going to roll the dice with what they got in Blaine Gabbard and Kyle Trask. But if... Carson Strong is somehow there at 60. I think Bruce Arians just says, look, we're going to take the chance um, because I think he's the kind of quarterback that he would absolutely love. I could see that as well. And last but not least, Caleb Ellaby. And let me give you a little insider tip. Nathaniel Hackett and the Broncos coaching staff really love him. And uh, the current tight ends coach in Denver uh, coached him at Western Michigan, I believe. Yeah, and I was going to say Denver. I mean, I, I've seen you and others. Uh, I know Ben Albright has talked about it, how, you know, LB is certainly on Denver's radar. You know, obviously the Broncos don't have a need of, you know, early at quarterback right now, given the trade that they just made. But if you're talking that pick at, say, 114, the fifth rounder at 144, like, yeah, if Caleb LB is staring them in the face, like, you just traded away Drew Locke. Who knows what you're going to do with Teddy Bridgewater? It's an opportunity to sort of draft and develop a quarterback, and that might be a very good landing spot for him. Mark Schofield, USA Today Touchdown Wire. Follow him on Twitter at Mark Schofield. Thank you so much for joining us and lending your time and expertise, Mark. And that's it for today here on Sports Cross. But we'll be back in just a few days to continue our 2022 Dash to the Draft series with a look at the defensive back class. So stay tuned. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at dcrom 59 and on Instagram at SportsCrunch with dcrom. And remember, that's Crunch with a K. Also, be sure to check out the new and improved SportsCrunch.com, where my first mock draft of the 2022 cycle is now posted. For Mark Schofield, this is David Cromwell saying so long, stay awesome, and whatever you're doing, please keep the brave people of Ukraine in your thoughts and prayers. Until next time, cats and kittens, stay cool.